Thank you to Matt Hickman for leading us in singing this morning. And thank you, Matt, for cleaning the surface before I stood up. Do you notice that that's been the practice here for a year, is that uh, when someone uh, finishes speaking, they take the moment, as awkward as it can seem, to clean this off. And you understand that that's a modern-day version of what you read in the Bible of washing the feet of the saints. This that you watch is a public display of love for the person who follows. Uh, This morning's passage actually comes from Romans chapter 10. And so if you would, uh, here within the auditorium, and those of you joining us online, uh, please take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 10. And we'll read from the text there in, in just a moment. We are now entering and are well into the second year of pandemic. As a physician, I wanted to say thank you uh, as, as a church, as followers of Christ, for the role that you have played this last year in our country, in our state, and in our community in making sure that our community is tied to something that is real and lasting. Uh, to things that will far outlast the pandemic and making sure that we can still gather and worship and connect with each other. Early on, you heard me say that the idea of socially distancing was going to be very important in the midst of a pandemic or infectious disease, but social distancing is only a few inches away from social isolation. And many of you have made it a point to make sure that we did not drift into isolation. You have made calls, you have made visits, you have delivered needed goods to elders and to those uh, in need in our community. Uh, Thank you for making sure folks were connected. And thank you to each of you who have borne the burdens of this pandemic, Uh, washing your hands, wearing your mask, uh, designing a worship auditorium so that we could sit in bubbles but together and to share communion in a way that is safe and somewhat somewhat distant. Uh, for all of you who have set up the entire church so that when I came in this morning, I, I walked through the door, my temperature was checked, uh, I was handed communion that someone has prepared ahead of time to be taken again together, but in a way that is safe. Uh, and, and then for each of you who will be cleaning up this auditorium afterwards and who will clean the doorknobs and the surfaces, you understand that that all of those actions are taken not out of fear or self-preservation, but just as Matt did here. It's an act of, an act of love. At the very first of the pandemic, uh, Dr. Ann Zink, who some of you know, quoted uh, Dr. Jay Butler, who was the chief medical officer of Alaska prior to Dr. Zink. And she quoted him as saying that in the midst of this pandemic, this was on the very front end of the pandemic, he said, we are going to have to handle four pandemics at once. The first pandemic is coronavirus. And from an infectious disease standpoint, that is the easy pandemic to handle. We know what to do. But the other three pandemics are the pandemics of fear, misinformation, and stigma. And and you've seen that play out over this last year as the entire country, as our state, as communities uh, grapple with fear and misinformation and stigma. But you, as followers of Christ, have a different motivation. And you've seen that play out over this last year because you, as followers of Christ, are not motivated by fear, misinformation, or stigma. You are motivated by faith, by truth, and by love. And that's why I say that each of these actions that you have taken, you have taken 
uh, out of something that is unique to followers of Christ, and that is a love that you first experienced from God himself. And that is the the love, that is the faith, that is the truth that will long outlast this pandemic once it's over. But the real problems of the world that, that long outlast this pandemic, the oppression, the injustice, the effects of sin will remain. And you, using those same motivations of faith, truth, and love, will be the ones here to help make the world right again. Well, all of that leads us back to Romans chapter 10 and this uh, passage that we read last week and we'll read again in a moment, which reminds us that God is making the world right again. You realize we will get through this. <laughs> the, the world will return to some sense of normalcy, but a much bigger problem exists, and that is how do we take care of, how does God take care of evil in the hearts of men? How does he remake the world right again? And last week we learned two things from Romans chapter 10. The first of those things is that when you hear Christians use this word saved, what we mean by that word saved is not simply a rescue, but it also has this idea of restoration. It's not just uh, saving somebody from a future harm, but for someone to be saved, it is to be restored back to the way the person was meant to be in the first place. When you are saved, you are not just rescued, you are being remade into the very person that God put you here in the first place to be. And that's the first thing that we learned last week. The second thing that we learned is that that transition, that restoration, that being saved, begins with two very simple things. The first is a confession, and the second is a belief. Now, as we read through the passage here in Romans chapter 10, I want you to look for that confession and that belief and see if you don't see them stand out again. So Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. In other words, you don't have to go somewhere else to get the truth. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So did you catch the two uh, things? For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so last week, we asked basically two questions. The first was, what does it mean to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? And we talked last week about what that means. This week, we'll ask the question, what does it mean to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Last week, we learned that to confess that Jesus is Lord is really another way of saying that Jesus is the YHWH. Remember, that's the name of God, that Jesus is the one who has control over all reality. 
and to come to the point of being able to confess that Jesus is really the one who controls all of the elements of creation and all of reality, to come to that confession is a recognition that Jesus can also have control of remaking you. And that's why the early writers in the New Testament and those uh, early Christians would come to the point of being able to say, like John does in John 1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made. And so you hear John saying that Jesus isn't the one who is in control of all creation. Uh, Paul says in Colossians, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So you hear Paul again saying that to confess that Jesus is Lord is to say that he is in control of all reality. And then the writer of Hebrews who says, He, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so you hear again that, that these, these followers of Christ, these very first Christians, when they wrote about Jesus, were confessing that Jesus is Lord. And by then, they, they meant much more than Jesus is a religious figure or Jesus is a, uh, a king or someone described as a, a person of authority. They were saying much beyond that, he is the one in control of all reality. And that brings us to the passage this week. The second question, which is, if that's what it means to confess that Jesus is Lord, what does it mean to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Now, to dig into this passage, we'll have to pause for just a moment and define a few terms, because there are terms that are used in this passage that over time have drifted not only into being translated into different languages, but translated into different meanings, so that when you hear that phrase, believe in your heart, you, as English-speaking Americans living 2,000 years later, will hear something that is almost exactly opposite of what Paul meant when he put pen to paper and in Greek first wrote this letter to the Romans. So let's talk about what does it mean to believe something in your heart. There's a sense in which that's sort of like an idiom. You know, uh, an idiom is a a phrase that we all know what it means, but you can't derive its meaning simply from knowing what the words actually are, like kick the bucket. We all know what it means to kick the bucket, but you can't derive that meaning from knowing what a bucket is or knowing what the action of kicking is. It, It doesn't lead you to the definition. In the same way, to believe in your heart, immediately we think we know what that means, but it's not because we know what a heart is or because we I think we know what belief is. So what do those terms actually mean? Well, in the ancient world, the word heart did not mean to them what it means to you. Now, they knew about the organ, the heart, and sometimes when they refer to the heart, they're referring to that organ in your chest that pumps blood all throughout the body. Sometimes they're referring to that. But sometimes they use the word heart similar to the way you would use it when we say something like, I just knew in my heart that this was true. 
Sometimes they would use it that way. But when they used the word heart, what came to mind was not the center of emotion or feeling. What came to mind for them was the center of thought and reason. So Valentine's Day is coming up. You'll draw pictures of hearts. You may send flowers. You may write a card. And you may even say, I love you with all my heart. And what you mean there when you say heart is that you love someone with all of your being, with all of your self. And you're saying that your heart, in that sense, is the center of your emotion, the center of your being and your feeling. But for the Greeks, if they were to say that I love you with all my heart, in fact, this came out, Jay Lee, catch me after service, I'll show you this. There's a, a humorous example of this in the passage you read for us from Colossians. If Paul says, I love you with all my heart, what Paul would be saying is, I'm loving you with my intellect, with my mind, with my reason. But he would use a very different word if he were saying that I love you with all of my emotion. The word in the passage this morning was the word compassion. And if Paul was referring to having compassion or feeling for you, he would not say heart. Uh, He would use a different organ. And do you know what that organ is? It turns out it's the intestines. It's the bowels. Now, I I debated on whether or not to, to bring this up. Can you even talk about the functions of the gastrointestinal system in the middle of church. And I thought, well, as a physician, maybe it would be helpful to to be a little bit of an educator, but also bring in some scripture. And I can tell you that early Bible students, when we're first learning uh, Greek and learning to, you know, to read these different words, we have a lot of fun in church, especially at times when the sermon maybe gets a little long and drawn out. Uh, There are certain passages we go to and you tend to have a little, little fun with. And one of those is searching for this word, that is translated in English, heart. And let me just give you one example. There are examples of this all throughout the New Testament. But one of the places that's fun to go is Philemon, where Paul writes a very endearing letter to Philemon. And on at least three occasions in that letter, Paul says something like, he says in Philemon one twenty, where he says, yes, my brother, talking to Philemon, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Now, the translators there used the word heart because they knew they couldn't put the real word in there or the junior high kid and all of us would come out and you wouldn't pay attention to the meaning of the verse. But do you know the actual word? Those of you that have a King James Version will find that the translators were honest with the text and they told you the actual translation is, Yea, brother, let me have joy of thee in the Lord. Refresh my bowels in the Lord. Now, you'll forgive me, I couldn't find an appropriate picture that would go along with that particular verse (laughs) if translated. But that's the way the Greeks would say something if they meant that I feel something in my heart. They wouldn't say, I feel it in my heart. They would say, I feel it in my bowels. You use a phrase like that when you say, I just had a gut feeling, sort of an extension of that time period. Uh, But if you wanted to tell someone that you love them, if you wanted to express something from the seat of emotion, you would say, I have this in my heart. But if you wanted to refer to the center of the intellect and you were writing in a Greek-speaking world, you would say that I have that in my, not in my brain, you would say I have that in my heart. But it meant the same thing that to you means I have this in my mind or I have this in my center of reason or intellect. So when Paul says, if you believe, In your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. Guess what the word is here? Did Paul say that I ask you to believe in your heart, meaning your mind? Or was he saying, believe in your center of emotion? 
And you'll be happy to know that here he uses the actual word heart. And so what Paul is saying in this passage, that if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He is saying the equivalent of if you have a conviction in your mind. And that's so important that you understand that Paul is not asking you to to believe something in spite of a lack of evidence or to believe something without thinking it through. He's actually saying quite the opposite, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and having investigated the evidence that's available, you come to a conviction that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. And so in the passage itself, to believe in your heart means the same thing as to believe in your mind. So let's define the other term. What does it mean to believe something in your heart? Again, the word belief is one of those that sort of changed over time. Nowadays, when we talk about believing something, that's one maybe level below knowing something, you know, for sure. To believe something is to hold that it's true, but to hold that truth either in light of evidence to the contrary or in in, in spite of not having evidence, I still will hold that something is true. And we say, well, I, I just believe it. But that's not the way it meant when this passage was first written. To believe something meant that it was known. In fact, the word belief comes from the word pistis, or the word faith. Now, there are three different ways of knowing, probably more ways of knowing, but three primary ways. You know things, first of all, by experience. When you yourself have an experience, you can know for sure that it was true. In other words, it's a sense experience. You can also know things that you have not experienced, but you can know them because they are true, they are always true, and wherever you go in the universe, they are true. Things like mathematics and geometry fall into this category. It doesn't matter uh, how old you are, uh, there you recognize that if you have two objects and you put two more objects, you have four objects. And if somebody takes away two of those objects, you only have two left. And that principle is true. It doesn't matter where you go in the universe. You could be five years old. You could be at the end of your life. You could be uh, on Earth. You could be clear across, you know, the galaxy that those are always true. And that's true, not just of math and geometry, but of logic, the rules of logic, the rules of ethics, the rules of physics. All of those things are, are always true. There are certain things that you can't not know, uh, as one author said. And so that's one way of knowing. So we know by experience, we know by knowledge. And then the third way of knowing is by what's called reasoned conviction. This is where I present you with evidence. I may present with you with experiences that I've had. I may pair that with stuff that we know and have known and is always true. And as I put that together, you are able to come to a conclusion that is what we call a reasoned conclusion. And in the ancient world, that reasoned conclusion was the word pistis or the word faith. And it's that word faith that is the basis of the word believe. And so this is the important point, that to have faith or to believe something is not equivalent of wishful thinking. It is not the same thing as hoping that something is true, whether or not you really know it. To have faith is to have a firm conviction in the truth of something because you have seen the evidence. Faith is the product of a proof. The image that comes to mind is that of a courtroom 
where imagine you're on the jury and each of the attorneys presents each side of the case and then you as a member of the jury having heard all of the evidence now know exactly what happened and you are able to render a conviction because you are convinced as to the truth of what happened because you have heard the evidence. And so in the ancient world, they would say that you had been given faith in what really happened. And that's exactly how Paul uses that word here in Acts chapter 17. Paul here is standing before the Supreme Court of Athens on the Areopagus. He is telling them about the real, the living God. He points to all of the idols down in the Agora, and he says, uh, these are not living gods. You know that we are God's offspring, and if we are God's offspring, then we should not think that the divine being is made of gold or silver or anything made by man. And then he says in the past, God overlooked that ignorance. But now he has set a day, verse 31, when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he, the NIV says, has given proof of this. Some of your versions may say he has given assurance of this. But the point there is he has given proof of this to everyone by raising Jesus from the dead. The word proof there is the word faith or the word belief. And so to believe something, to have faith in something, is to hear the proof and to have a conviction based on that proof. And notice the proof that Paul gives to the Supreme Court in Athens on that day. The proof that God will make the world right again is that he has raised Jesus from the dead. And so when we come to this phrase, when Paul says that if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. When he uses this phrase, believe in your heart, what he's saying is when you come to this firm conviction, having looked at the evidence, when you have this current firm conviction that God raised him from the dead in your mind, then God is able to start remaking you. You will be you will be saved. And so here's the translation. If I were on the translation committee, (laughs) I might argue that this is the right way to translate uh, Romans 10, verse 9, that if you're convinced in your mind that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. And that's exactly the conviction that Paul came to. Do you realize that for Christians, everything hangs on whether or not Jesus was raised from the dead? Everything we believe Everything we have practiced here, every song that we have sung, every prayer that we have prayed, everything that we do as followers of Christ hangs on the resurrection. It's what Paul says. He has come to this firm conviction, writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, if that's true, because... We testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And do you hear how those early Christians came to the point of saying, this point about coming to a firm conviction that God raised Jesus from the dead is so important that we will put the whole endeavor hanging on that one conviction. Somebody once said that all of Christianity hangs on a very thin thread, the thread of the resurrection. But that thread, you find out, is made of titanium. 
And you find that out because of what happened with those early Christians who first saw Jesus. How is it that a group of fishermen, a group of poor, a group of uh, people who were not in the intellectually elite of that time come out of Judea under the thumb and the oppressive hand of the Roman Empire, how is it that they ended up changing the world? It's because it wasn't them who was doing the work. How is it that they came to this firm conviction that Jesus was raised from the dead? Well, it turns out there were probably four ways that they came to the point of being able to do what Paul said, of being able to confess with their mouth that Jesus was Lord and that uh, to believe, to have that firm conviction that God raised him from the dead. The first, as we talked about last week, is that they were able to hear Jesus say things that only God says, and then they watched him do things that only God could do, and then they saw him raised from the dead. Now, they could know that he was raised from the dead in basically four different ways, and you see these come out in Scripture and in the early Christian writings. The first way that they came to a firm conviction that Jesus was raised from the dead is that for a few of them, they saw it. In fact, this is where you can go back in Scripture and read about those first individuals who saw Jesus raised from the dead. They could know for sure that God raised him from the dead. But then there were others who came to that firm conviction because they heard the testimony of those people who first saw Jesus raised from the dead. And there are many more people who are in that category in the first century. This would be those thousands of people who on the day of Pentecost heard Peter giving this testimony. They realized it was true, and they ended up following Christ. The third way is that those early Christians could read the recorded accounts. This is what you have access to, because the people who first saw Jesus, first experienced following him, wrote it down. And so in those first four Gospels of your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of those include an account of Jesus being raised from the dead that fits right into the rest of the purpose of each of those books. And it's in those accounts that we learn the details. And the details are all enough alike to know that each of those Gospels are describing the same event, but each of the accounts are just different enough for all of us to recognize these are different perspectives. In other words, this isn't just one story that got, you know, kind of turned into myth and then spread. Instead, you have very real perspectives from real people, but these are different perspectives. And it's here that we learn that Jesus was put in a tomb, much like the one you see uh, on the screen, that there was a stone, 4,000-pound stone, rolled in front of that door. It was sealed. There were uh, guards who were placed there at the tomb. We find out that he absolutely was dead. He was not resuscitated, uh, you know, after just a few hours, but was in there for until the third day. The first people that saw him were women, very special women, who were the very first ones to see Jesus. And only after that, several of the disciples, and then more of the disciples. And then Jesus appears to people, first in Jerusalem, and then also uh, on the road to Emmaus, and in Emmaus, and then in Galilee. And we're told later that up to 500 people all witnessed him and got to actually see Jesus. And so you have all of these eyewitnesses. They wrote that down, and then those accounts were passed on to those first Christians, who then would pass it on to others. But the fourth way that others were convinced that Jesus came back from the dead, either they experienced it or they talked to those who experienced it or they read the accounts, but they also recognized the lives changed 
by those first followers of Christ. Every first century historian, those who are believers, those who are not, those who are skeptics, every one of the serious first century historians will now come to the point of saying that those first Christians, at the very least, believed they saw the risen Jesus. Now, the reason they come to that conclusion is that's the only conclusion that fits the evidence of how the entire world was changed from that small area in Jerusalem in that, in that first century. And that's still the greatest testimony of today, is not just what Jesus did back on that day being raised from the dead, but what he continues to do in the lives of people today. So that's the way that we know that Jesus was raised from the dead. That's the evidence to uh, to weigh. And so what will you do with that evidence? What will you do with the accounts that you get to read? Will you weigh that evidence as the member of the jury and come to your own firm conviction in the truth of what happened? Well, why does it matter? Why does it matter that we spend time weighing that evidence, hearing those testimonies, and and determining in our own mind, was Jesus raised from the dead? Why is that important? Four reasons, and this is the lesson really for today. First reason is this. Why does it matter that Jesus was raised from the dead? The primary, most important reason is that it means that Jesus is alive. This person who upholds the universe with the word of his power is still alive. In other words, you are not being invited this morning to follow or believe in an idea. You're being invited to follow a person. And that person is the living one who controls all reality. This is what Paul says here in our very verse. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is in control of all reality, he is Lord, and you believe in your heart, again, you know, you're convinced in your mind that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. In other words, he counts as if everything was done just right. And with the mouth, one confesses and is redeemed. Stored. Why does it matter that Jesus came back from the dead? Is that the work he has done on every single follower since that very first day, that work is now being done in you by the real living Lord. The second reason, why does it matter? It matters because it means the grave is not the end. You remember Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, he wrote a poem called The Psalm of Life, and in that he says, Tell me not in mournful numbers, life is but an empty dream, for the soul is dead that slumbers, and things are not what they seem. Life is real, life is earnest, and the grave is not its goal. Dust thou art, to dust returneth, was not spoken of the soul. The grave is not your goal. And do you realize that prior to the resurrection of Jesus, that idea had never been accepted anywhere, by any culture, by any religion. But now that Jesus is raised from the dead, it tells the whole world that the grave is not your end. It is not your goal. This is exactly the point that Paul makes. You have to flip back a couple of chapters in this letter, when when in chapter 8 he says, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies 
through his spirit that dwells in you. And that brings us to the third point. Why is the resurrection important? It's important because it means you do not have to wait to be made right again. You don't have to wait until death for God to remake you into the person you were meant to be in the first place. His resurrection 2,000 years ago means that he has the power to remake you even today. Consider this verse from uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and 4. Paul begins Romans 6 by asking a question. If, if God, by showing his grace, can forgive sins, should we sin even more? So that God can be more gracious and we'll praise him for being even more gracious because of our sins. And Paul says, that is ridiculous. And he uses the strongest Greek no by saying, by no means. And then he says, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now think about this. When a person is baptized, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have or live a new life. Many of you have made that decision, and you have been baptized. And if this verse is correct, it means that what happened in the water was an imitation of what happened in Christ's grave. That you die to yourself And according to this verse, we are buried with him. That means in a grave. Understand, Jesus was not buried in a grave like we might have today, you know, a six-foot hole, you know, dug in the ground. It was in a cave-like structure like you see on the screen. And so to be buried with him, in a literal sense, would mean that when you're baptized, you walk into that tomb. You walk over to that slab on which Jesus is laying, having died for you, And you crawl up onto that slab and you lay down next to him. You are buried with him. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead by God, you too are raised to walk a new life that begins then and there. So the image is just as Christ was raised from the dead, you are changed. You are being remade starting from that moment when you decide to follow Christ. Why is Christ's resurrection important? Because it's an imitation of your resurrection, being remade to be one of God's kids. And then finally, why why does the resurrection matter? Because you are being remade for eternal life. You are not being remade to have just a prosperous life in the here and now. You are being remade for real life the taste of which you can only get a sense of in this life. You are being remade for life that lasts forever. And get this straight, just as Jesus came back from the dead, not as a phantom or a ghost, it was him, his body, his soul. It was, it was the true person who was brought back from the dead. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, that's what's true for you. Get out of your head this idea that we will be whisked away as spirits to some foreign place called heaven. What what is taught in scripture is that you are being prepared for eternal life that is real, in which your soma, your body, which is driven by your soul, will be replaced 
by the body that is driven by the Spirit of God or animated by the Spirit of God. Just as Jesus came back from the dead and he told his disciples, look at my hands and my feet, does a ghost have have flesh and bones as I do? The point Luke is making is that when we come back, it is for real, it is for real life. And that's what Paul again says in Romans 6, that if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. And so why does the resurrection matter? Why can you have a firm conviction in the resurrection? It's because it is this, the tiniest little wedge that opens the door for God to be remaking you, to save you. You might have heard the name Michael Faraday. Uh, you remember that he's a, a scientist who lived in the, born in the late 1700s, did most of his work in the early 1800s. Michael Faraday will be familiar to any of you in the, in the medical community, those of you who are chemists, those of you who are electrical engineers, will all recognize that uh, Michael Faraday is the father of electromagnetism and an early researcher on chemistry. And he was a scientist who would be the the modern-day equivalent of one of those scientists that you see on a TV show or a program that just wows, you know, the audience. That's what Faraday was like when he would make a discovery and would be so excited about it that he would give public displays of what he was learning about electricity and magnetism and motors and, and what would eventually become batteries. In fact, you could say, though you don't know this, is that right now you are being wowed by the inventions and experiments and discoveries of Michael Faraday. The lights that illuminate a room that otherwise would be pitch black. Those of you online who are watching a video that is being broadcast and transmitted over wires and uh, perhaps cellular networks, Every time you turn on the lights or drive home in your car and a battery is used, uh, you have Michael Faraday to thank for all of that. And he would wow crowds with what he discovered. But do you realize that after his talks, oftentimes he would disappear. At the moment, somebody would want to come up and ask him a question or give him an honor or thank him for his talk. They couldn't find him because on at least two nights every week, he would leave the lecture hall because he had to make his way back to his church, his congregation in London, where he was an elder. As an elder of the church, he would go back and teach and be a part of, of his, his congregation. Everything that drove him in all of his discoveries was driven by a recognition that there was one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. And for Faraday, there was an incredible excitement, a joy that came in figuring out how he did it. And then he would go back to the confines of a very small congregation, and there they would worship a God together. Well, towards the end of his, towards the end of his life, somebody went up to Faraday and said, Faraday, you've had so many speculations and you've, you've thought so deeply about all of creation. Do you have any speculations here on your deathbed? Do you have any speculations about the afterlife? And do you know what he said? He said, speculations, I have none. I am resting on certainties. I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him until that day. It's a quote from 2 Timothy, one of the last things that Paul ever wrote. And you hear in that great mind, the great scientist mind, him saying that when it comes to 
life that is real, life that lasts forever. I'm not resting on theories or speculation. I'm resting on certainties. And that's the invitation that Paul gives to you, invite you not to follow an idea, but to follow a person, to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and to come to a firm conviction in your mind that God raised him from the dead. And see what God does in changing you. God is changing the whole world, one person at a time, and that includes you. An invitation to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. What will that do for your home? What will God do in remaking you as a father or as a mother, as a child, as a student, as a teacher, as a health care provider, as a public safety officer, as a realtor, as a business person, as an employee? What will God do with your struggles, with your sin, with your affections, with those things that draw you away from God? What needs to be changed? What needs to be worked on? Understand that all of the great work that God does in preparing you for eternity begins with two very small things. A confession that Jesus is in control and then a firm belief that God raised him from the dead. Well, that's the invitation this morning, is that you come to that confession and to that belief. And so we'll ask that God bless the reading of his word and as We stand, and I take a minute to clean the podium. If you'll contemplate this invitation that God extends to you to come, to know the one who is in control of all reality, and to put your faith in him. Contemplate that and respond as we stand now and prepare to sing.